It's a long way to Berlin, but we'll get there. Uncle Sam will show the way. Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Episode 4. We'll sing Yankee Doodle under the linden with some real live Yankee pep. Pep, it's a long way to Berlin, but we'll get there. And I'm on my way by heck, by heck. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin, January the 9th, 1917. And so the decision has been made. German Embassy, Washington. In response to Supreme Army Command's desire for a declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare, the Chancellor has declared that he lacked sufficient faith in President Wilson's peace initiatives to be able to advise against Supreme Army Command's wishes. Berlin. The Chancellor gave his view with a heavy heart. He worries about bringing America into the war, is unconvinced that the advantages of a completely ruthless submarine campaign will outweigh the disadvantage of adding America to the list of enemies. Despite all the promises given by the Navy, Germany is jumping into the unknown. If history follows the rules of tragedy, Germany will fail. On the other hand, what in 1916 was considered madness may, in 1917, with three times as many submarines, be successful. As for prospects for peace, according to the press over there, England can't come to terms at present because we'd get off lightly and enlarge our empire without any difficulty. Completely true. Those shrewd empire builders know what they're talking about. Washington. The U-boat campaign will begin on February the 1st. After all that's happened, I can't help seeing this as a declaration of war against the United States, and one which puts us in the wrong, because it means an end to Mr. Wilson's peace overtures, which had been started with our approval. The Rubicon has been crossed. War is inevitable. The Times, January the 12th, 1917. The joint reply of the Allies to President Wilson's peace note recognizes the motives inspiring the note and expresses thorough agreement with the proposal to establish a League of Nations. But it says clearly that there must first be a satisfactory settlement of the present conflict and declares that it is impossible at this moment to secure a just peace. Regarding the President's request for a statement of terms, the Allies find no difficulty in defining them. They include the restoration of and adequate compensation for the lands occupied by the enemy, and the reorganization of Europe on the basis of nationality, security, and the liberation of enslaved peoples from foreign domination. They do not include the extermination or political extinction of the Germanic peoples. Washington, Colonel House. Conversation with the President. I suggest to him that if Germany carries out her threat and begins an unrestricted submarine campaign, we ought to be in a state of readiness 
We ought to be prepared militarily. No, he replies. This country does not intend to become involved in the war. If we were involved, it would be a crime against civilization. Besides, now that the Allies have rejected my attempts to secure peace, I can't avoid becoming suspicious of their motives. If we were to give them military assistance, I fear that it would be used for no other purpose than to further nationalist aspirations. And don't forget, I presented myself to the American people as the man who kept our country out of the war. I was re-elected, I believe, for that very achievement. I have a mandate for peace. I can't ignore it. No, we remain neutral. The president may change his mind. He often does. Washington. Cipher report from Count von Bernstorff to the foreign ministry. The president's peace note can be said, without exaggeration, to voice the spirit of almost all the American people. What they are keen to know, however, is why Mr. Wilson, whose inclination is to delay and be dilatory, dispatched his note immediately after the German offer of peace. His principal motive, I believe, was his desire to play the role of mediator, a prospect which would have been imperiled if our enemies had agreed to deal directly with us. As to the unacceptable conditions put forward by our enemies in their response to the peace move, it was their deliberate intention, in my view, to create panic amongst us and compel us to declare an unrestricted U-boat war. They hope that this, in turn, will draw the United States into the conflict. The White House. The president, I suppose, is very disheartened. Well... It must be hard for him, having invested so much effort to be met with failure. It might be argued, I suppose, that he hasn't failed, but that he hasn't yet succeeded. Hmm. No man could have tried harder, except yourself. Thank you. Of course, the reason why peace has been so difficult to achieve... The general populace. Correct. It's a dangerous thing, Bernstorff, to give one's people an exaggerated hope of success. Mm. Your government, in the main, is as sensible and fair-minded as its counterpart in England, but because of the will of the people, it's impotent. True. In Germany and in England, the people have been kept ignorant of the true state of affairs and have been led to expect much more than can possibly be achieved. Yes. In order to prosecute the war, each government's been obliged to create an atmosphere and eagerness, and then to keep the people's courage and enthusiasm at white heat. Yeah. It informs them that the war's being fought for a just principle, and it's going really well. Victory is within sight. And the people, having been worked up into an uh, exalted patriotic fervor, Demand that the government must, uh, must stay firm. Fight on to the bitter end. Veto any whisper of peace. <laughs> and if it doesn't, then the government must fall. It's a vicious circle. Very. Woodrow has been turning over in his mind an idea for one more effort to stop the war before we should be drawn in. 
or before national hatreds deepen and make a durable peace impossible. His statement, which he intends to read to the Senate, is addressed not only to the belligerents, but to all peoples. He makes an appeal to the conscience and common sense of the world. He asks for peace without victory, and argues that a peace achieved through a victory by one side or the other would rest on quicksands, because the vanquished would only strive to even the score someday. The belligerents must make a rational give-and-take peace, and the powers of the world must preserve it. No nation should seek to extend its rule over any other. All nations should be united with a common purpose and in the common interest. Woodrow talked with Mr. House about his idea. Mr. House was wild about it. Says it's the greatest thing that the president has ever done. The American Embassy, London. January 16. I've been given a cipher dispatch containing the speech which the president's due to make on the 22nd. It contains the sentence, It must be a peace without victory. I don't know what to make of this. Seems meaningless to me. The secretary who first received the dispatch suspected an error in transmission and asked if the words could be verified. The reply came back, no mistake, no mistake. The mistake is monumental. Good Lord, I've already had to explain to the foreign office here that the peace note shouldn't be regarded as placing the two sides on the same moral footing. Now we have this peace without victory... Same idea expressed in a different way. I've written to the president advising him to omit the offending words. But he won't, of course. Washington, January the 23rd. Cipher telegram. Wilson's speech met with general approval in the Senate. Only our wildest opponents have, once again, attacked him as pro-German. The wish is expressed, for example, by House, that we state peace terms, either publicly or secretly, so that a conference might be called and war averted. But time, alas, may be too short. I should like to leave no stone unturned in order to avoid war with the United States. As I understand the situation, our refusal to submit peace terms arose out of the fear that they might appear too moderate to public opinion in Germany. Would it be possible, before opening unrestricted U-boat warfare, to state what these moderate terms would have been, if we had indeed been able to submit them? The White House. Well then, anything new? Nothing that's good, I'm afraid. Yeah. I wonder indeed whether our meetings have much point anymore. I've had the same thought. At the very least, however, we can share our mutual pessimism. The situation in Germany, the mood of the people, it would seem, has worsened. Yeah. They're angry at the response of the Allies. And the military now has complete control. What about the Kaiser? My impression is that he leaves everything to Hindenburg quite deliberately, so that Hindenburg will get the blame when it ends in failure. You mean if, not when? If. Yeah, of course. Thank you. 
Berlin seems to think that your president has finished with his peace initiative. Wow. For the time being, at least. And now, perhaps, his thoughts are more preoccupied with war. War can't be precluded. War is almost certain, some people think. If U-boat activities are unrestricted... House, you must believe You've me, done what I... you can. We both have. What more is there to say? January the 31st, 1917. A communication from the German government via Bernstorff. It states that the government is not prepared to publish any peace conditions at present because Germany's enemies have published terms which aim at the dishonor and destruction of Germany and her allies. My government considers that as long as our enemies openly proclaim such terms, it would show weakness on our part, a weakness which does not exist, if we published our terms. By publishing the terms, we would only prolong the war. The letter then gives a long list of the terms that the government would have offered if it had entered into negotiations. How absurd. Insulting, too. If it had been possible, my government would have been glad to postpone the submarine campaign, but preparations had gone so far that they could not be cancelled. My government believes that the campaign will end the war very quickly. In the meantime, it will do everything it can to safeguard American interests begs the president to continue his efforts to bring about peace. My government will bring the submarine campaign to a close as soon as it is evident that the efforts of the president will lead to a peace acceptable to Germany. I went directly to the White House and handed the letter to the president. I still cherished a small hope that Mr. House would be able to exercise a favorable influence over him but I was deluding myself. As soon as he'd read the letter, the president saw at once how perfectly shallow it was. A mockery. I think he was rather more surprised at the outcome than I was, more deeply disappointed. His hopes, it seems, had been higher than mine, and he declared that he felt as if the world had suddenly reversed itself and thrown him off balance. The fact is, to be truthful, the Supreme Army Command and the government have been discussing the merits or otherwise of the submarine war for years. And Supreme Army Command has decided that this is the right time for a trial of strength with the political leaders. They want a decisive step to be taken, even if it risks bringing America into the war. The President and I debate whether or not to give Bernstorff his passports immediately or wait until Germany commits some overt act. Keeping Bernstorff in Washington, even for a week or two, might have some benefit. He's done much to restrain the extremists in Berlin. On the other hand, the preservation of diplomatic relations could persuade the Germans that we've accepted their ultimatum. We decide that Bernstorff must go. His departure, we think, might possibly bring the Germans to their senses. The Imperial German Embassy, Washington. Uh, my dear Colonel. Bernstorff. I, I won't keep you long. I merely... No, merely isn't the right word. I, I wanted to say thank you. You've done so much to help me in my work. And so often, you know, I, I needed help. Were it not for you, I think I'd have been sent back to Germany a long time ago. I assure you, 
was all in the line of duty. No. No, no, much more than that. Much more. You've become, without doubt, the best friend I possess in this country. The president was right, of course, to tell me to leave. Yes, he was. In the circumstances... It was the only action possible, yes. May I say I, I deeply regret what my country has done? Yes. Thank you, Bernstorff. It's so sad that it should come to this. Yes, yes it is. We were very near to peace. Someday, Bernstorff, your people will recognize the great efforts you made. I wish you a safe journey. Page has written to declare that by sending Bernstorff home will compel Germany to see the hopelessness of her cause and the war will end. I can't agree. The liberal elements in Berlin are defeated. Germany will push on with her submarine war and America, in turn, will enter the conflict. But she won't, it seems, do it yet. Having invested so much effort into peacemaking, the president is determined to avoid American involvement in war if humanly possible. He despairs, describes Germany as a madman that needs to be curbed. I ask him, Mr. President, is it fair that the Allies should be left to do the curbing on their own? And he winces. Mrs. Wells. Is the meeting over? It's suspended. We're having a break. Well, I've been wondering whether my husband might like a round of golf. Oh? Oh. Would it look bad, do you think? In my view, golf is essentially a trivial activity, and it's particularly so at this critical time. I'd wait a while. February 3rd. At two in the afternoon, Woodrow delivered before Congress an address which he'd labored until midnight to complete. He formally announced the severance of diplomatic relations, but declared his unwillingness to believe that Germany truly intended to commit the willful injustice that they threatened. Even now, he said, he would only believe it when overt acts have been carried out. America had no desire to serve any selfish ends. America wished to stand true to the immemorial principles of her people. And these principles are the foundations of peace, not war. God grant, he said, that we are not challenged to defend them. And I say, amen. David back from Walton Heath. We've both been very miserable without each other. David said he would have sent for me, only he felt it wouldn't quite be playing the game with Mrs. LG. She's very tolerant, he said, considering she knows everything that's going on. It's not right to try her too far. <sighs> Hanky, secretary to the cabinet, is full of admiration for David. He's amazed at the amount of work that's being got through now. He says that two years ago, he warned Asquith, we shall win on land and be beaten at sea unless proper precautions are taken. In spite of this, nothing was done and it's all been left for David to do. David recounts this to me and adds, I wonder whether I've come into this show in time. Princess Blucher. Berlin. They're calling this the turnip winter. 
in honour of a vegetable which in happier times is fed to pigs. The rounded contours of the German nation belong to the mythic past. We grow thinner every day, we have dark shadows round our eyes, and our minds are occupied with speculations about our next meal and dreams of dinners long ago. The heroic attitude of the people has entirely disappeared, and the conscientious scruples which deterred many people from storing underhand supplies of food have vanished. It's every man for himself, and the devil take the hindmost. We starve, we freeze. Coal is a concept, not a commodity. A perfect epidemic of burst water pipes has broken out all over Berlin, and there are no plumbers to repair the damage. This is Dante's Inferno. The Daily Mail, February the 3rd, 1917. The food controller puts the nation on its honor not to consume more than the following quantities. Bread, four pounds. Meat, two and a half pounds. Sugar, three quarters of a pound. It is for the women of Great Britain to see that these orders are strictly carried out and thus defeat the German plan for starving us out by a submarine blockade. February the 7th. Opening of Parliament today. David left after the ceremony, a fact which caused great offence to the bad-tempered section of the House, i.e. the hostile Liberals. David said to me, I think I shall have to get rid of this Parliament. It's an Asquith Parliament, and I want a Parliament of my own. The tension remains acute between America and Germany. David hopes America will declare war, as he thinks it will bring peace nearer our grasp. American involvement will be a scrap of good fortune which will help him in his job. I'm a lucky man, he told me, and it's good for a leader to be lucky. Gives the people confidence. Berlin, February. Everyone is excited about the submarine question. We all know and feel that Germany is playing her last card. With what results, no one can possibly foretell. Some people hail the campaign as an infallible step to a final victory. The pessimists and the wise ones who are discontented with the war assert that God has struck the German nation with blindness before utterly ruining it. We talk of what will happen after the war. I should like to have a hand in the peace settlement, David says. And then I should like to be Prime Minister for the first four years of peacetime. There'll be a lot to do, and I want to be the one to do it. If I gave it all up now, he continues, I wonder whether I'd be regarded as a great figure in history. I doubt it. Personally, I have no doubts whatsoever. He supplied the country with money, munitions and men, and now he's seeking to retrieve victory from the wreckage of the previous government. Foreign Secretary. Page, how good to see you. Have a seat. Thank you. Well? Well, an interesting, indeed, let us say, a most dramatic development. Beneficial too, one hopes. That might depend, I suppose, whose side you're on, if any. I'm entirely with the British, you know that. So, 
Divulge, please, Balfour. A communication has been intercepted, a telegram from Foreign Minister Zimmerman to the German ambassador in Mexico City. Mexico? Indeed. And this communication, I take it, has been decoded? Oh, yes. It's the real thing? Most assuredly. We obtained it some while ago and have taken considerable care to make certain that it's genuine. Hmm. And you've also taken care, I suppose, to ensure that no one will know how you got it. I offer no comment. Here, Ambassador, is the communication. I now present it to you. You may regard this formal act as a pledge of the document's authenticity. Mm -hmm. We intend to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor, in spite of this, to keep the United States of America neutral. <laughs> and who knows, they might be in luck. Do read on. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together, generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. Good God. Good God. Yes, absolutely. We rather hope that it will help your president to make up his mind. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Make your mother proud of you and the old red, white, and blue. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums ram tumming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer. Send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. In episode four of Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade, Lord Northcliffe was played by Henry Goodman, Arthur James Balfour by Tim Woodward, Francis Stevenson by Tuppence Middleton, Colonel House by Nathan Osgood, Walter Hines Page by William Hope, Edith Bowling Wilson by Laurel Lefko, Count von Bernstorff by Chris Pavlo, Kurt Riesler by Gunnar Corthry, and Princess Blucher by Jasmine Hyde. Enter the Peace Broker is a Chrome Radio production. It was directed by Elizabeth Rigby, with sound design by David Chilton, songs performed by Jessica Walker, with James Holmes on piano. The script consultant was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, and the producer was Katriana Oliphant. With thanks to the Rothermere Foundation. <laughs>